We've been going through the gospel and trying to help us understand and, and even be able to articulate to other people what it means. And, uh, but I came across, I think, a sign that kind of fit here. Uh, this is a Google sign. Uh, here's what it says. Isn't that true? <laughs> There's some things that Google doesn't understand, and I'm convinced that it, it doesn't understand that the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the world knows the, needs to know the love of the Father, and that we live in a world that's dominated by sin and chaos. And I was even thinking of this last week as I was studying and, and, and kind of tracking what was going on in the Ukraine and I don't know if you've been following it at all, but there's really a, there's a growing, vibrant church in the Ukraine. And, and there was a call from the Free Church to actually pray for the church over there. But the, I went online just to see what were the Christians doing in a country like that. And I, I came across a website from Send International. It's a large missions organization. And look what it reads. They, they posted this. It said this, Let us recognize the Ukrainian pastor who from the pulpit of his local church preached on how Christians are to behave themselves in a time of conflict with prayer, participation, good deeds, wise words, and sharing of the gospel. But this pastor not only preached a power, powerful sermon, he lived it out by spending significant time on Maiden. Now that's the center square there in Kiev, uh, doing the very things he preached. During one overnight shift in the prayer tent, he had personal conversations and times of prayer with over 50 people. That's not surprising in and of itself. What is surprising and wonderful is at least 30 of them from, were unbelievers, politically passionate enough to be on Maiden, but spiritually open enough to ask a pastor for counsel and prayer. The church actually, during that revolution, if you were following it all, put a prayer tent up in the middle of it. And they were inviting people to come and talk and to present the gospel. And as I paused and as I thought of that, I go, these people are convinced of Romans 1.16. And let me put that passage on the screen. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Ukrainians and even people here in the United States. Okay, See, these people were prepared in Ukraine to share the gospel, and we recognize it's not just for missionaries, though. It's not just for people over there. It's for us today. And we, we that know Christ need to be prepared. And another theme verse as we've been walking through this series, 1 Peter 3.15, just a reminder here. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, we've been working our way through what is the gospel and understanding that sin was the breaking point where we need a relationship with God. Sin came into this world and it broke our understanding of who God was. But because of God's love and his mercy, he looked to restore a relationship. He sent his son to provide salvation for us. Jesus became that perfect sacrifice, and that last song really was at the heart of what Jesus has done. He conquered death. But today we need to dig in one more area. 
and where we need to understand it well enough actually to be able to articulate it to other people. And, and this is the, the topic is how do we respond to the provision of God's salvation? So we have the need, we have the provision, but there is a response that, that the scriptures are calling people to respond to that. Now, in your, in your notes, I, I just, a reminder, I, I put points one and two in the verses that we were using, and, and these were verses that I was introduced to, oh, ages me, back in the early 80s, when we were, Deanna and I were getting involved in youth ministry, and the, and the senior high memorized the, almost all of these verses for presenting the gospel to their friends. And we had the opportunity to see fruit and, and camps where kids were, were introducing and to people to Christ using these scriptures. But today we need to dig on this area of responding. And I don't know if you realize, but the response of salvation is a topic that spurs some debate amongst theological circles. And at the heart of debate, there's a question. I don't have it on the screen, but it's this. What is it that moves one from being unsaved to being saved? Now, some of you think, well, it's obvious, isn't it? But I need to drill down a bit because one of the issues centers around, for example, our will. And you go, to what degree do we have a free will to pursue God? To what degree has sin impacted our wills? And maybe to reframe a question for you, some would say this, does God choose you or do you choose God? And lots of people have wrestled with these questions. And matter of fact, some have defaulted here, maybe even here today. I think back, maybe it's like my church where I grew up in. And I go back, and there's a couple phrases that we kind of used all the time when we talked about crossing from unsaved to saved, and it was phrases like this. One just needs to say the sinner's prayer. Anybody use that phrase or heard that? Or another one is like this. You know what we do? We just need to ask Jesus into our hearts. You've probably heard that phrase. Now, it is it simple? And I go, no, it's really not. There's more to it. I don't know if you realize, but in the scriptures, you really can't point to a sinner's prayer. You realize that? And nowhere in scripture does it really talk about asking Jesus into your heart. So the issue with our response, how we respond to God's work, is a challenge. Um, Deanna and I had the privilege of working with college ministry for years, probably 20 years or so uh, over the last many years we've been in ministry, but uh, oftentimes the college students would ask some of these questions. Well, how does, they'd start to read their Bibles and they go, well, how do they cross over? What is it that saves us? And, And there's a question I would tease them with. And I threw out this question. At what point were the disciples saved? Have you ever thought of that? At what point did it cross over those 11, not the 12, okay, one of them didn't, obviously, but that where did they cross over from in darkness and all of a sudden they're in light? 
But do you realize that the scriptures don't reveal in any way that the, that the disciples prayed some sinner's prayer? Or I'd kind of tease them like this. Well, maybe it was when at the early parts of Jesus' ministry, they were down fishing on the lake and, and Jesus walks by them and he sees them and he goes, guys, come and follow me. And they get up and they leave their nets, their boats, and they follow him. Maybe that's where salvation occurred for them. You ever ponder that? Or maybe it was this. Uh, in Matthew 14, Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. And he looks at Jesus and he goes, you are the Christ. Maybe that was the point where he crossed over from death to life. Now here's the deal. Some people want to create a very tight system about crossing over from, from unsaved to saved. And the discussion around it, it gets complicated. And you know what? I'm not going to go down that path today. I'm just teasing you a little bit here today. But I would say this. God has to work. Man has to have a response. God is the one that initiates building a relationship, and the scriptures are clear that people are lost. They're trapped in sin. And, but it's clear that as the Holy Spirit works, the gospel, even that Romans passage, it, it begins to give light to people. And the Holy Spirit is in the process of helping people become aware of their brokenness and their separation from God. But this is also true. As people become aware of the separation, the Bible does call for a response. Man has to respond. So here's how we're going to approach it. I'm going to walk through a whole bunch of scriptures today and look at the words and some of the phrases that we use, how man has to respond to God's provision of salvation. So we want to jump into there, number three there. And we want to, but, but the goal again is for us to be able to articulate, even with our friends or relatives with people, about this issue of responding to the gospel. But letter A, if you're following along in the sermon notes, I said it this way. We need to repent. One of the words is this issue of repent or repentance. Now let me show you a passage where this is used in terms of connecting to salvation. Luke 13, 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There he uses that word repent. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, another one here, I want to throw this one in here. It doesn't use the word repentance, but it's, it's kind of critical to its understanding. Look at Mark 2.17. When, <clears throat> when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. See, people who are healthy, they don't go rushing off to a doctor. Isn't that true? But in the spiritual world, people who don't believe that they're sick or even separated from God, they don't go rushing to repent either, do they? Why would they? 
if they think they're okay. But when one becomes aware that one is a sinner, that we're separated from God, repentance then makes sense. But let me show you another verse here as it applies to that. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. These, now, understand, these people, in, in one sense, they're recognizing they need a spiritual doctor. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there's something that's stirred up where repentance, again, leads to salvation. Let me give you another passage, 2 Peter 3.9. We're going to go through lots of scripture today. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's that word again. Now there's an interesting issue around the world of repentance and repent. And I think if we split up in the groups here, we'd find that everybody maybe believes some nuances and you could define it in some way, but it may not all be the same. But there's one aspect here I got to point out is that there's a dominant idea of what it, repentance means in the New Testament, and it's a little different in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the emphasis really is on changing the mind. I, I, it's, it kind of goes like this. I know now that I'm a sinner. And I understand and I believe now that I need salvation. I changed my mind in the belief. Or, or maybe it's like this. You know, at one time Jesus was a good man, but now I'm going to change my mind and go, you know what? He really is the Messiah. He is who he is. So there's that understanding of grasping what Jesus did. And the New Testament, though the weight on it, is really centered on changing the mind. But the challenge is that in the Old Testament, the words really aren't equivalent. And in the Old Testament, there's really an emphasis on turning. And turning away from something or returning to something. There's action involved in it. And almost there's an understanding even of penance in, in that Old Testament understanding of it. So this idea then, when you couple the two, and I really think both need to be coupled together in this belief, that, that we, we both understand and say God is who he is and Jesus was sent to die for us, but there's also then a turning away from the past and you're walking toward Christ. And let me just highlight this because there are some churches, I'll remind you that have a very narrow understanding of salvation and repentance, and they want to just focus on the belief of, of and not really emphasize the turning aspect. But interesting illustration I found, Luke chapter 3, I don't have it on the screen, but if you remember uh, John the Baptist's mission, he was preaching a message of repentance. Remember that? And then G Jesus took over. But it was interesting. People were responding and being baptized. 
into this message of repentance. And then people, well, let me read it to you. I, I don't have it on the screen, but look at Luke chapter 3, verse 11. He said, he answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked. They responded. He says to this, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money. From anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. You see, a lifestyle is to be different than at that point. There's a change to occur. See, when people are convinced of the truth, and when they repent and begin to turn away from the old, what it is, it's return, re changing directions and walking toward God. And the Son. And see, God invites us to turn away, to believe different, and walk toward Him. But there's more biblical language than just repent. Look at letter B. We need to exercise belief and faith. Two words that are associated with salvation. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. There's that faith aspect being used, and it's different than repentance. But let me show you another one here, John 20, 31, and it uses this word believe. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now he's connecting believing with salvation again. You catch a different word than repentance. But look at John chapter 3, verse 18 and verse 36. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You see the connection to believing there. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me throw another one out. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Now this even widens it yet, that belief. Has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now understand what the belief, the call there, equating it to salvation, is believing in that God was the one who sent the Son for us. And that's connected to salvation. Look at Acts, one more, Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, I got to go down a path here, a little dig a little bit here, because we got to remember that faith and particular belief can, I think, can be misused and misunderstood. Uh, immediately when we go to believing, I, I think what we do is we focus on the facts of the gospel. We give a mental assent to, okay, the song that we sung, Jesus died for me. I know the facts. I know that it's a historical event. 
Uh, now, this is where I understand it's a little more complicated today, and you got to put your thinking caps on here, but let me put a statement on the screen. Jesus died for me to pay the penalty for my sin. When you look at that statement, does belief in that statement equal salvation? And here's my answer. Not necessarily. And this is where the process of believing can go wrong. If knowledge and facts about the gospel becomes the end in itself, rather than the means, something is missing. The facts of what Jesus did can get removed from the person of Jesus Christ. See, believing the facts doesn't necessarily mean that it's a biblical belief. One can know the facts, but never get something, and this is something that's so important, that salvation is a relational bond through faith and believing. Just believing the facts about Jesus does not keep one out of hell. What keeps me out of hell is a relational bond with the one who loves me. Faith and believing starts really in the heart and in the relational sense that it's a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with God. Believing is not knowledge, it's believing a person. It's believing Jesus. It's believing God. See, faith, again, as well, is not a commodity to be given toward God or something, but actually it's a trustworthy bond that's connecting me relationally. See, without a relationship to a person, the mere biblical assent to facts really has no long-term meaning. It's not the stuff of eternal life. I think of Matthew 7, 23, I don't have it on the screen, but there's a warning that Jesus gives to religious people and they're doing all kinds of things in his name. And he comes and he says this, depart from me, I never knew you. And those were dire consequences, that warning. They knew the facts of the Messiah, but what went wrong? They failed to believe the person who was standing and teaching them. They knew the facts of the Messiah, but they wouldn't trust in the person of Jesus. They wouldn't put their faith in the person of Jesus. Uh, I, I came across a quote that maybe summarized it better than I could. Look how it reads. Uh, we need to recognize the relational basis of faith. God is a loving promiser whose grace elicits the response of faith. In other words, faith isn't a duty, a token payment of our will, but it's a moment that comes when our hearts become aligned with God's heart as took place for Abraham in Genesis 15. God took him outside to count the stars and promised, if you're able to number the stars, you'll see how many offspring you have. He believed God, and God counted that faith as righteousness. See, believing God 
that he sent his son, that God is the promiser. And faith then is a response to the promiser. But there's more biblical language. I gotta go down. Let her see. Look at another term. We need to receive or accept him. And so we talk about the response of receiving Jesus. Look at Matthew 10 40. Whoever, re whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. But look at John 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but God. There's that word receiving. But are, are you catching this? That the language of the scriptures in terms of salvation is multifaceted. There's more that God is working there and these many terms are, are talking about this idea of salvation. But here's where I got to dig into this text just a little bit here. In verse 11, that word receive is actually a different word than in verse 12. Now in, in English, we don't catch that. But let me put in verse 11 the word, the Greek word on the screen. Uh, if I tried to pronounce it, I'd mess it up here. But look at the definition. To take to. To take with oneself. To join to oneself. To an associate. A companion. Do you, do you catch the phrase there? It's saying that this, these people were unwilling to be the companion of Jesus. But he comes in verse 12, and it's interesting that he changes the word. And he, here's the Greek word on the screen. It's lombano. And it means this, to take with the hand, to lay hold of somebody in order to use it, to take up and, get, and carry it away, to take upon oneself, to take in order to carry it without the notion of violence, to remove Take away. You, you feel the stronger word there? The second word is, is not just a companion of Jesus. It's to grab hold of to, and take with you. I was trying to figure out an illustration with this picture, and I, I went back to my wedding where Deanna was walking down the aisle, and, I, and then I realized I couldn't remember much after that. And I'm getting too old or whatever, so I had to go back to some weddings that I performed. But think of it this way. A young girl comes walking down the aisle with her husband, and, and the groom is standing down here waiting for his bride to be here, and the father comes down, and the father takes his hand, and he puts it in the hand of his, of his daughter. And they grasp their hands, and they come walking up the stage to get married. That's the kind of strength of that receiving. There's a relationalist where they grab onto each other, and they walk towards something relationally. That's what receiving Jesus is. It's not just some mental ascent that going, okay, Jesus, come into my heart. No, it's a grasping on to. Let me give you another word. I got to keep going here. Letter D, 
Another expression, we need to confess, that word confession. And look at a passage here, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it adds the word confession to our response. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Now you understand different passage, different places, different contexts, but here's another word that implies a response to salvation. Again, are you catching the breath of the terms here? How the heart has to change and has to embrace Jesus. Uh, but all of these, are, I think, is, is a result of the stirring of the Spirit of God, and He's inviting us to respond in some form to Him. But let me move to the last one there, letter E. A couple more words. We need to follow. And sometimes in our culture, we use the word surrender when we talk to people. But now here's where I, I got to point something out. The word surrender, okay, really you don't find it in the scriptures. I don't know if you know that. It's an extra biblical term, but it really, it, it, it is connected to this idea of following. Okay, and let me show you this. Luke 9, 23 is an example. And he's saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. There's that surrender, okay? And take up his cross and follow me. Now let me give you one more text here. John 8, 12. And Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, that word follow is a is a verb to join, to accompany, but it's a connection to being a disciple, a follower. So as God works, what's taking place here? It's our independence. When we're independence, we're moving from that to we're being dependent on another person. There's a surrender of, of to someone else and following them. This, this idea that you're giving up something. I, I had to come back to even marriage again, where in one sense, you give up some things for the sake of the relational bond, don't we? Isn't that what we're called to do? And, and wouldn't it be really foolish and dumb and sinful if a guy gets married to his wife and says, okay, I'm connected to you now, but I'm just going to go date other people. And you go, no. That just doesn't make sense. You're giving up something for the sake of the other. You have a new love. So we surrender the desires of the self and we give that away and we go, I'm going to love you rather than love myself more. See, love actually pulls us to surrender. Matter of fact, it, we can even delight in that, even with Christ. Are you catching again the breath of these terms surrounding salvation and our response? 
But the outgrowth of believing, faith, receiving, following, folks, is a relational bond with the Son of God. And for the disciples, when they said, when they're looking at the fishing boats and they said, guys, come and follow me, this wasn't just some casual thing. They were going to be joined at the hip with Jesus and they were going to walk with him and follow him and submit to him and, and, and listen to what he said. But the bond is relational. You see, I think the challenge is this. Too many people pray a sinner's prayer to escape hell. And then they kind of go on and they live a life like this. Okay, Jesus, I've got the insurance thing on, done with. And then I'll think about you on Tuesday. And you know what? Wednesday night youth group, I'll start thinking about you there. And maybe an occasional Sunday if I'm not playing golf or fishing or, or there's not enough you know, other things aren't going on. And you go, no, that's not salvation. Salvation is a restored relationship. And it's about responding to the one that loves us more than we can ever imagine. And here's the deal. If you have a relationship with him in this way, you are called to be prepared to talk to people about responding and to be able to use these terms in a way to help them understand what it means to be a follower, a disciple, what it means to repent, what it means to have faith, what it means to receive. Because they need hope and they need more than information. They need to see that there's a, they're responding to the person of Christ by believing, by repenting, by receiving, by following, by confessing. They're responding to Jesus. So let me remind you, though, of one more point here. In this process, we don't have to be the Holy Spirit all the time in people's hearts. And so often I think what we do is we start trying to convict people of their outward immoral lifestyle and their outward sins. But I call you back to this. The real issue is the heart of that they're living a life of autonomy, of independence. And the call them to something different, that there's a different way to live. And that's where you use the words that we talked about today. But it's this idea that we're inviting them into a relationship with the Savior. And we don't have to always play the Holy Spirit in that process. We are called to be faithful to give out the gospel. That's what we're called to do. And now we are called to do it with gentleness and respect. But here's, I got to say this in closing. That there might be people here today, when you look at those words that we walk through, and you might need to go back and go, okay, have I really received Jesus as a companion? Have I really repented and turned and said, God, I will walk toward you? Or have they really believed in a sense where they go, I know that you're the Son of God and I want a relationship with you. And 
here's the challenge. If that's you today, there's a verse that I want to challenge you to look up this week in Psalm 38. It just very simple. It says this, taste and see if the Lord is good. Begin to seek him. Begin to check out the scriptures, read the book of John, and just see what kind of a relationship that God wants you to be in. And he's inviting you to respond to him, not just facts, not just information. He's respond, asking you to respond to him personally. Let's stand and pray.